For our New Testament reading, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish even your perfection. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present. I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So, um, let's go ahead and dive into our passage. The first thing we want to see here is that at the beginning, the apostle says, This is the third time I am coming to you in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Why would every word need to be established? Because there is something very weighty, something very important about to happen. Um, If there is no improvement in the accusation that has been leveled against the apostolic ministry in Corinth, when Paul returns there, this will be that second witness in trial. And so their deeds of these false teachers, these false apostles of Christ... These deeds will be tried. They will be tried in, if you will, that church court. And those men will be found wanting unless they repent. And so at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. 
So this is very important stuff that Paul is speaking of here. He's not talking in, in, a, um, in a generic sense. He's speaking very, uh, very succinctly, very pointedly as to, what's been, as to what's been going on. Speaking in courtroom language here. These are, these are uh, very important things. Um, in the days of, of, of the Corinthian church, we have heard before that there were those who were assaulting Paul and his ministry. He will, he will talk about some of the ways that they insulted him here in this passage in order to downplay the apostolic ministry and to cry themselves up. We learned over in chapter 11 that these men that were doing so were actually angels of Satan, messengers of Satan, right? They were, they were, um, they were the ministers of Satan transforming themselves into angels of light. They had a different message. They had a different gospel. They, they had a different paradigm of truth than we as Christians have, than the apostolic ministry had. And so they had risen up in Corinth, and in order to gain ground, they had begun taking pot shots at Paul and his ministry. And they, said they had several things to say about him. So after, after this entire book of 2 Corinthians, here in the last chapter, he, he will close out his letter by saying, I'm coming to you, this is the... Third time I'm coming, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. In other words, we're going to hold court when I come back. I haven't come so far to spare you. I was hoping that we could handle this by letters, but it seems that that's not going to take place. So notice what he says. I told you before and I foretell you as if I were present the second time and being absent now I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again I will not spare. You remember what the Apostle Paul will say in Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. He'll say, an heretic you will, after a first admonition and a second admonition, refuse. You warn him once. You warn him twice, and then you tell him, that's it. We don't have any more warnings left. We, we must now go to judgment. So Paul says, I've been once, I've been twice. The third time, I will not spare. You see how consistent this is with the rest of Scripture. Okay, so uh, I will not spare. Then since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. Now in verses 3... And four, Paul is going to give the example by which they will know that he is from Christ. When Jesus appeared, did he come on a white steed with a crown on his head and a sword by his side? No, he will come like that. Revelation 19 tells us that. But not the first time. The first time he came, he appeared weak. He appeared as a baby, right? He was... He was um, he was incarnate in the lowest part of the earth. That is, in the most weakest form of humanity, in, as a zygote in the, in the womb of his mother. He came in weakness. But was he weak? Not at all. He was powerful. Such that when they came to arrest him in the garden, and they said, he says, whom seek ye? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, ego eimi, I am. And they fall backward to the ground. Was he Powerful, absolutely. How did he appear weak? Paul says, you see, this is how his ministers appear as well. They appear weak, but because of Christ speaking in them, they are powerful. 
So you seek then a, uh, a proof of Christ speaking in me. Because you've looked at the outward appearance. Okay, if I come the third time and you're still sinning, you will have it. That's what he's saying. I will not spare. You have sought a proof of Christ speaking in me, who appeared weak but was actually powerful. Even so, you have said about me and my bodily appearance that it appears weak, and that's true. But the power, the power of Christ, is still there. And this power, by the way, did not die out with the apostles. There is a proper church authority, a power, if you will, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ has left in his church in the administration of the offices of the church. That power remains. Now those men are not to be uh, tyrants. They're not to behave themselves unseemly. They're not to uh, lord it over the people of God. They're not to be lords over God's heritage. That's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5. They're to be examples to the flock. They are ministers, servants of Christ. They work for Christ in that. They don't work for the people. With Christ, it's all about the sheep. All about the sheep. And so in Ezekiel 34, we'll hear how the Lord takes aim at those shepherds that feed upon the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. And that's always been true for the, the, uh, the gospel ministry, if you will, whether that existed in the time of the Levites or even into today. So, for, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. And that's how verse 4 ends. So it's very clear what Paul is saying here, I think, although we often miss it. So now when we come to verse 5, we'll remember that verse 5 doesn't stand alone. It's a very famous verse. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates, but I trust ye shall know that we are not reprobates. So what is the proof of their faith at this point in this, in this passage and at this point in the narrative through Second Corinthians? What would be the proof of their faith? That they would recognize the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in the apostolic ministry and submit themselves. Rather than remaining stubborn against the teaching of Scripture, against the teaching of the apostles. Notice this, this self-examination then turns out to be very objective, doesn't it? It's not a subjective thing. It's not, you know, well, is my faith stretchy enough? Is my faith strong enough? Is it this or is it that? It's in this context whether or not you're willing to submit to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as it comes to you through his word and the exposition of his word. This is one of those great tests of faith, beloved. What think ye of Jesus Christ and what think ye of his word? We're going to talk a little bit more about saving faith today. And one of the things that we learn about saving faith is that the Lord has, has put all of these physical motions upon it as descriptors in the Bible. It is a turning to Christ, a coming to Christ, a returning to him, a rolling upon him, and so on. Well, how do we do that? We do that by submitting ourselves under his word as to what we are to believe and what we are to practice. And we don't, 
remain aloof from that. And part of that here in Corinth was that they had distanced themselves from the Apostle Paul. So now notice what Paul's prayer for them in verse 7 is. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Paul will say here, my goal here in this mild rebuke, or maybe it's a little bit more than mild, is that you would learn to do good. It's not that you would approve me or us, the apostles, or those who travel with me, those who who were there at the beginning in Corinth and helped to plant that church. Not that. That's not my goal. I don't need your respect. In fact, so far do, do I not need your respect as far as me personally is concerned. It would be okay if you considered me a reprobate if you did good. Although I trust that you will not consider me that way if you're doing good. And so that's the phraseology of the apostle here. And he will say, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. So then, we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. These things I write being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness. According to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. And in this, let's remember a few chapters back when the Apostle Paul uh, would speak to them about the joy that he rightly expects from his ministry among them. (coughs) Right? Um, As the Apostle John will say, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. Paul is essentially saying the same thing here and reminding them of what he had said before. We can do nothing against the truth, but I don't want to use sharpness when we come. I much rather when we come that we can have sweet fellowship together rather than this corrective mindset that you've thrown me into here. Rather than this, this pursuing in a, in a sharp way for your edification and salvation. And so notice then that there is this, this joy that the Apostle Paul also speaks of. And finally we note that the that the the authority that God has given to his ministers and officers in the church, that authority is for edification and not for destruction. Right? So that means a couple of things. It means, first of all, that they must do, that they must exercise that that authority in such a way that they keep the edification of the entire church in order, right? They keep that before their eyes. Not just one or two people. Um, Not for the good of the one, but it's for edification. And edification, not of one or two, but for the whole. Sometimes the edification of the whole, as we read back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, means casting one out to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. So what... What that ministry is among the people of God, the Christian ministry, which is administered by elders and ministers, or we say elders that are church governors and elders that are teachers and pastors. What that ministry is, is a ministry of edification, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4. It's not for destruction. We might say uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, if you will, that it is for the destruction of something at times, 
right? For the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. And by flesh there, I think in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking of that fleshly desire that that man had. It's, it's that fleshly destruction in order that the spirit may be saved in the day that is that saving day of Christ when Christ comes upon that man who, is at, who was at one time a fornicator and now is no more. So, finally, brethren, then, farewell. Notice, be perfect. That's the standard, nothing short of that. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Let's make sure we understand what peace is, because living at peace here, doesn't, it doesn't sound like this is a very peaceable chapter, threatening judgment and trial and discipline. What is peace? Peace is not tranquility. Peace is right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's truly what peace is. And this is why Christ is called the Prince of Peace and why the Prince of Peace can say, do not think I came to send peace but a sword. Why? Because in bringing men to peace with God, very often that's going to bring men at odds with one another. So when Paul says live at peace, he's saying live at peace with God and in your peace with God then be at peace one with another. All right, so then um, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, it's a cultural adaptation of that that we use here. I see when you come into church, you know, everybody hugs one another. That's the equivalent. That's what we do here, right? Um, some cultures still use that peckety peck, right? The one on one cheek and then on the other. And that's the same kind of thing that we would do as, as far as giving each other a hug. And we, we, we want to make sure that that kind of affection continues among the people of God. It's a very important matter, isn't it? Um, this is one of the things that we, that we were lamenting over the, over the years of you know, being estranged from one another physically. We, we, we started looking at each other as infectors rather than as, as beloved brethren to be embraced. We want to make sure that we don't do that with one another. Of, of course, if you're sick, stay home. But if you're well, come and give us a hug. Do that. Right? Let's obey what the apostle says here. Let's maintain that, that, that kind of physical embracing with one another. You know, that goes a long way, right? If you're embracing someone, you're certainly not spitting in his eye, are you? And then finally, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. This is what we call the apostolic benediction. It's very famous. Uh, a, a lot of ministers dismiss their congregations with this blessing. We've used it here from time to time as well. And it is all-encompassing, isn't it? The grace of Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost. If you draw those principles out, what would you find? You'd find that they encompass the, the entirety of the Christian religion, the entirety of the gospel. All right, with that then we'll bring 2 Corinthians to a close. Lord willing, we'll look at Galatians chapter 1 next service. Let's stand.